0: The presenting sponsor of Sober Stories is Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits. With over 17 spirits, five pre-mixed cocktails, and one spectacular sparkling wine, all without alcohol, Liars has become the Sober Stories team's standard for zero-proof drinks that feel festive and celebratory. I've got our community and ops lead, Callie, here today. Callie, I know you're taking a break from alcohol right now. Oh yeah, I am. I'll tell you what, I just got to the point where no matter how much I drank, no matter what it was, I would wake up the next day with a headache and I'm just... I'm not about that life. I just Mm. can't do it anymore. We're too busy. We are too busy. And I know when you first cut out alcohol, it can feel like there's pretty much just sparkling water to drink. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like sparkling water or like soda water with bitters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. I would put money on the fact that Liars is going to help you recreate all your old standards. Tell me what you're missing. Ooh. Okay. Uh, All right. So like summer's coming up, right? Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. am so ready for that sun. And I am So ready to sit out on the deck, soak in that little vitamin D, and drink a Paloma. Oh, yes. We have the ruby red grapefruit here, so it, like, makes your Paloma so much better. But Mm. I just got you. Go for the Agave Blanco. It's one of their two tequila alternatives. Oh, that's dope that they have two alternatives as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. What else? Oh, like a gin and tonic. You know, when Mm. you're just, like, hitting up a dive bar or something with your buds, being able to just drink a gin and tonic easy. Everyone knows how to make them, you know? I mean, I can't – remember the last time i was in a dive bar but yeah sure we'll go with it that's fair <laughs> i like cool yeah. <laughs> yeah okay i don't remember the last dive bar i was in but we've got you covered still we have two different gin alternatives they have the pink london spirit or the dry london spirit so if you want oh like gosh. a little pink pink gin and tonic we got you oh you know that i love a, i love an aesthetic moment aesthetic okay what else oh you know what i also have it out here just like I love a mojito as well mm. get that like nice herby that like just so mint forward mint forward yeah I'm gonna put that as my tagline <laughs> in my bio mint forward <laughs> just asking a little mint forward yeah yeah but we've got you Liars has a white cane spirit it's got this great little monkey on the bottle because all of their bottles have like the animal of the place where they came from That's so yeah, they got you Liars is into recreating and recreating well as many non-alcoholic spirits as possible so Callie in mm-hmm. any Listening to this, head over to liars.com and use code Sober 1010. That's the number 10, the word 10, for 10% off your purchase. Liars gives you the freedom to drink your way to not just provide an alternative to those who don't wish to imbibe alcohol, but to ensure that everyone, like Callie, mm-hmm. can enjoy the mirth and the merriment of a soiree or shindig. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the silver spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Hey, Super Stories crew. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of our show. I just got back from a trip to West Texas and I'm already back on the road to California. I know summer can get busy and it can be easy to question our choice to go alcohol free in this time. So I hope you stay plugged in with us here on the podcast. This is a tool in your toolbox. I have a really interesting conversation with Mike Gavoni for you today. I'll tell you right up front that Mike challenged a lot of the thoughts that I already have and does things in a way that feels different and sometimes foreign to me. And I think that's one of the coolest parts of what we are doing here. It truly speaks to the ethos of sober stories, that we are trying to tell diverse stories, that we are telling stories that are different from one another so that somebody out there can hear that story, relate to it, and identify with it. Then they can find their own version of this that feels really, really good. Mike Gavoni is an integrative holistic recovery coach out of Sedona, Arizona, with a focus on trauma, mindfulness, and a whole person healing. As a person in recovery from opiates, alcohol, and marijuana for 16 years, Mike understands firsthand the impact of a dysregulated nervous system, and now he helps other people find healing through somatic practices. I want to give you some quick content warnings. This episode discusses suicidal ideation and the stories we've uncovered in recent years about the abuses of children by priests in the Catholic Church. We also talk about psychedelics, which I know is not always supportive for everyone's version of sobriety. Take what works for you in these podcasts and leave what doesn't. This is about telling different kinds of stories so that you might be able to take away something from it and add it to your toolbox. We both have different approaches to living without substances that both come from really a whole person approach to using the mind and the body and the environment and the psychosocial approach to it. And Mike takes it with a different spin. He has a different flavor on it. So I really enjoyed geeking out about this with him and understand this experience that we both walk through from different lenses. After you give today's episode a listen, tag Mike and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories family. I am so excited to welcome Mike Govoni to Sober Stories. Mike, thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, Beth, thanks for having me.
0: I am excited to hear more about your story and what has brought you into the recovery world. But before we dig into that, give our listeners, those who may not be familiar with you, kind of the cliff notes of you, who you are, what you do, all the high notes.
1: All right, the cliff notes, let's see. (laughs) I I (laughs) currently... Yeah, I currently reside in um, Sedona, Arizona. I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts, so you might hear a little bit of a Boston accent. Ah. Um, I currently have a private practice here supporting people in recovery from primarily substance abuse to experience deeper healing and transformation. Hmm. Um, Like yourself, I take a whole person approach. And the reason why I do this work today is um, I've had to live this experience myself so it's, it, I think it's my passion, it's my purpose to support others to suffer less mm. and really uh, make that link between the biography of what happened, their story, and the biology of how it landed in their body, whether it be mm. illness, uh, addiction, or a combination. And uh, I take a trauma-informed approach, so I believe that trauma is at the root of, of what we're suffering from. And uh, yeah, it's my pleasure to support people on their journey.
0: Mm, beautiful. You know, it's interesting when you say that this feels like, like purpose, and 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 I find that so many of us who have gone into working in the recovery field after our own experience have a very such a rich understanding of this. And, and funny story: when I was getting my master's in social work, it was like this little twenty-two-year-old, and I was like, "I'm going to help people with substance abuse," and had never but didn't have any personal connection to it at all. I thought it was this noble cause and that I was also immune to experiencing challenges of substance. And thinking back, I'm like, how could I have ever helped people authentically and completely without having ever experienced it myself? Not to say it's impossible, but it's just interesting when you say, and, and the people that I talk to about, like I'm here because of my lived experience. So tell us more about your story. What brought you to the recovery world?
1: Yeah. Beautiful. Can I share just one thing about the last thing you just said is, uh, Cal Young, he had a great quote. He said, you have to have gone through or going through the process in order to initiate the healing to the patient, Mm. only the wounded heal. Mm. So that's, I think that's our story as people who have overcome addiction and trauma and that sort of thing is, it gives us the, you know, the lived experience to assist and support others. Mm. So yeah, a little bit about my background is, um, Like all of us, um, I started off in the womb with my mom, and Mm. uh, and I think that's the place I experienced my first trauma, Uh, Mm. meaning I was swimming around in a sea of cortisol and stress Mm. response because uh, my mother had found out my dad's secret. Uh, My dad was a religious figure, and uh, before he became a born-again Christian preacher, he was a Catholic priest. And he had all of uh, those skeletons, which is a big, long story in itself, mm. uh, but he wasn't heterosexual. And my mother found uh, that out through pornography uh, when I was in her womb. And she had my sister who was two years, uh, two years old at the time. So she was the pastor's wife and uh, she had to, you know, her world got flipped upside down and she had to pretty much find a strategy to get out of this uh, situation And uh, she did, and it, it, you know, required her to leave. And uh, I was born and eventually a few years after that, my parents, you know, obviously my mom had left, but I, my mom lost custody of her children because of her own alcoholism and the trauma my mother experienced as a, as a kid and uh, early adult. And she, she couldn't, you know, take care of us in the sense. So my father came in and did the best he could. Although he had a lot of problems, there was no paternal instinct from my father. And uh, there was not a lot of emotional support. There wasn't a lot of nurturing. So I found ways early on to nurture myself. And as I grew a little older, I uh, started with drugs and alcohol Mm. and found myself smoking my first joint at 11 Drinking booze, and then it just escalated from there. I was about 17 years old, and I had a $500 a day opiate habit with mm. Oxycontins. And my buddies and I didn't know at the time what these things were, but they got you really messed up. And I remember the first time I did an OxyContin, I was totally annihilated, and I w- I felt like I I was like wrapped up, maybe in that womb again, or in mm. some sort of you know comfy blanket. And as we know, the neural pathways of opiates are very similar to uh, the connection of a mother—that nurturing aspect—or, and and I I felt that, and I, and I I was often running with the opiates, and mm-hmm. like drugs do, they support us in the beginning, and then like the other edge of the sword is they they cut us at the end, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and at the end, I found myself reaching out to my mother. And at this point, you know, she was back in our lives and she ha- was trying to address her own alcohol issue. And, um, I said, mom, I can't stop doing these pills. I need some help. So she said, okay, let's go, uh, to, to your doctor. I said, okay, I was 18 years old and I found myself sitting next to a baby scale at my pediatrician's <laughs> office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, 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 this was like the last year I could probably be at my pediatrician's office. And, uh, so he was a great guy and, you know, he looked me over, I did an exam and he's like, okay, you're good to go. And I said, good to go where? Mm. And he said, uh, you're good to go to detox. Mm. And I kind of did the whole look at like, looking around, like, are you talking to me? And I couldn't, I couldn't get myself to go to detox. Mm my ego at the time, like only losers went to detox. That's the way Mm. I thought. Obviously, I don't think that way today, but I I, I couldn't stand thinking that I I, I was defeated. Mm. And so I went out on the street and I got some wafers of methadone. Mm. Now I've Mm. never seen methadone to this day. I never saw methadone before that. And I just happened to come across them and Mm. I wound up breaking these wafers up. And I wound up playing doctor. I got myself off these OxyContin. And it was extremely difficult. I had my little pharmacy of of benzos and little things I was playing with to come off to support anxiety. And 19 years later, I haven't touched an opiate today. Hmm. At that point, there was a lot of stuff going on in my household. I started to uncover and discover my dad's secrets, you know, the same way my mother did with pornography and a computer in my home and that sort of stuff. And it was a very challenging time. And I I had to leave my childhood home because it wasn't conducive. It wasn't safe. Hmm. There was my father was stuck in his own frenzy. And I moved in with a buddy. And at that point, I was like I said, I I was doing the Oxycontin's I'm kind of backing up just a little bit. And I and I got off them at that house as well. But 30 days into playing doctor with myself, living with my buddy, a part of my dad's story came out. And, you know, like I said, my dad was a Catholic priest before he married my mom. Mm. And there were allegations of pedophilia from mm. my father. And uh, he had wound up telling us that something may come out. And this is when all the priest mm. stuff was coming out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's the way I felt. I was like holding up a tsunami. Mm. And at this point, I just graduated high school, thank God. Mm. And I was coming off those oxies. I was 30 days clean, (laughs) and it came out in the newspaper. Oh, my God. My father's story. And I said to myself, you know, if I can make it through this, if I can Mm. stay sober through this, I can stay sober through anything. And and as a, as a male, you know, a young guy, it it was challenging, you know, it's a challenging time of finding out my own sexuality, who I am as a man. And nevertheless, Mm -hmm. to have this identification with my father as a pedophile was devastating. Mm -hmm. You know, are people going to think I'm a pedophile? You know, all these thoughts were coming through my head. They were, it was very, very difficult. And I had to, I had to get sober first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And then I had to go on my journey of recovery and healing. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And even two years after I put the oxys down, I was still using marijuana, still drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. And finally, at 21 years old, I reached out to my mom again. I was terribly depressed. I was having Mm -hmm. suicidal, homicidal thoughts. I was scared of my own thinking, full of anxiety. And uh, I, I said, Mom, I'm having these thoughts. I don't know what's going on. And I'm, I'm scared. I think that drugs and alcohol are making me depressed. Mm. So she said, Okay. And at that point, like I said, she was exploring with 12 steps. She said, well, Why don't you come to a meeting? So she invited me to my first meeting, and I identified right away with the speakers. Mm. And I listened and I took in the information and I identified with their pain, with the impending doom, with the anxiety, with the depression, with all those emotions and feelings. And I I left that meeting. I said, Ma, that was great, but I'm not an alcoholic. Hmm. And at the very end there, I was just drinking booze and I got wasted that night. And I was driving erratically. I was, you know, acting a fool. And I woke up that next morning. With the same feelings, impending mm. doom, anxiety, depression, not wanting to live this way, and I reached out again to my mother. I said, Ma, I think I need to go to another one of those meetings." So I did, and I got sober for my second meeting of AA, and I've been sober off opiates and alcohol for um, will be eighteen years this mm. November. So that's my journey with getting sober, and I like to say the four chapters of my book. Hmm. Uh, or you know when I write this thing will be trauma, addiction chronic illness, and then spiritual awakening. Mm. So there's a couple more chapters to this, if you want me to go into it, or (laughs) where do you want to go from here, Beth?
0: You know, I I have so many questions. I've been writing a bunch of notes down. And, uh, you know, I think the first thing in that part of the story that really stood out for me is this conversation with your mom, like, mom, I'm not an alcoholic, while identifying so strongly with these stories that are being shared in this meeting. And- And also the sitting in the pediatrician and and saying, who's going to detox? I'm going to detox. And I think, you know, that idea of ego really speaks to what I was saying earlier too, is a 22 year old with my master's in clinical therapy being like, I'm going to fix people who have addiction problems without ever experiencing my own addiction or any understanding that even at the time my drinking was already maladaptive. And this like ego that separates us from what is otherwise is something that can help us move forward in this path but you know i have a question for you and i want to back up because one of the very first things you said is that you were primed from the womb because of these rushes of cortisol and i know with your credentials and and the work you do that you understand why that was the case and how that impacted your physiology and your eventual outcomes with substances. But for those who might be listening to this, who are saying, I have no idea what that means. Can you give us an explanation of how even something as early as when you're floating around in the womb impacted your story today?
1: Yeah, I can. So thanks for asking that question, Beth. I think part of it maybe through the lens of epigenetics, you know, genes express and turn on and off depending upon environment. And that's the science, the latest science we know as a result of that. So the old kind of paradigm is, you know, your ancestors or your mom or dad had this certain ailment and then you're destined to have it. It's it's not so black and white as it mm-hmm. used to be. It's, it's you know, it's a combination of how those genes begin to express themselves for addiction and, you know, illness. And for me, through epigenetics, I think as a young uh, little fetus and baby in this, sea of cortisol, you know, my nervous system was, was already beginning to be fine-tuned for Mm -hmm. a certain, you know, response. And for me, it's more of that sympathetic fight or flight response. And that's, Mm -hmm. I can talk a little bit more about that because I think so many people are in somatic experiencing, it's called stuck on Mm -hmm. and your nervous system stuck on. And that was the case for me. So I think You know, that environment as a young little baby, you know, primed me for those neurological issues, the IBD or the bowel disease I suffered from, and ultimately, you know, addiction as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think addiction is solely based on genetics, but obviously your upbringing. If we look at the studies of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, that's a big, huge uh, study they did with making the correlation between chronic illness and adverse childhood events. Typically, obviously, neglect, abuse, you know, certain things that that make up that questionnaire that determines your ACE score. Uh-huh. Um, so there's 10 questions. Um, if you answer yes to two, you have two out of 10. For me, I have about seven. Out I was about of 10.
0: to ask you what your ACE score would be.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have about seven yeah. out of 10. So just to give yeah. you a, a little synopsis of the listeners of how that works, there's a, there's a little research done on that ACE score for People who have six ACEs or more compared to those with zero, you have a 4,600% greater chance of using drugs intravenously.
2: Hmm.
1: Okay. So yeah. it's, there's it a deep correlation and through my studies and in practice, you know, linking the biography mm-hmm. of what happened to you, our story to the biology of how it landed up in your body, in your Mm -hmm. psyche, in the mind-body. Once again, Mm -hmm. mind-body aren't separate. They're the same. You think, you feel, you feel, you think. And it's, you know, it's, it's very, um, there is a linkage there. And Mm -hmm. to begin to see how you came to be this way, whether it's addicted or traumatized or suffering from depression, you know, when you begin to understand that the story that you live through is connected to the biology, then there's great insights and things that can happen.
0: And I think that's the power of, of approaching this from more of like a biopsychosocial model of understanding that it's not just one thing it's not just our lived experience it's not just our physiology it's not just our environment all of these things come together to impact the way like you said the genes express in our actual lived experience of whether or not we are going to be susceptible to having these challenges with substances and when I think about this 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 baby in a womb full of cortisol which is a stress hormone which is the stress hormone that makes our nervous system activate, like, of course the baby is going to be more prone to having an overactive nervous system to needing to calm that nervous system with something. And, you know, I, I find so many people that I work with specifically, but also just in the, the space in general, they're like, how did I get here? How did I get to this point where I'm using this substance and I can't stop doing it? And like, I look like I have it all together on the outside and it doesn't make sense. Or like even people who don't have a history of this they are like, this doesn't make sense. And And I think the takeaway for me is it's not just one thing. It's all of these different things. And these things are not Predeterminants of an eventual outcome. We can have these genetic markers. We can have this family history. We can have this environment. We can have this upbringing. You can have these stories and we still might have a different outcome, but it makes sense when we start to understand kind of this more global understanding of like, how did I get here? How did I get to this point? So when you found yourself sober from the Oxycontin, but still using marijuana, And then eventually you, marijuana and alcohol, and then eventually you were sober from all of the things. What was that early time like for you when you had started to go to AA with your mom and you were starting to remove all of these substances from your life?
1: Yeah, I think it was like uh taking a fish out of the ocean and throwing it on land and <laughs> saying, "Okay, learn how to live now." <laughs>
0: <laughs> I only laugh cuz I understand.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's so foreign. I mean, I've been pumping these chemicals in my system for so long and all of a sudden I'm trying to learn how to live. And, you know, so it was very challenging, but I think the the fellowship of of 12 step is mm-hmm. is a beautiful fellowship to get support to share your story, to understand you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And that's, that was a beautiful start for me. Mm -hmm. I don't go to 12 step today, but that's what I needed. That that's part of my story. So it was challenging. It was beautiful. It was exciting. It was, it was scary. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but, but I, I, I let people in for the first time. I remember that the image for me was like a net Mm I was like, let I was a was like the safety net, and I was just letting them catch me, letting them listen to me, yeah. letting them guide me, and I listened. I listened to the people, the old timers, like I was gonna die because mm-hmm. I was gonna die yeah. if I went back to using opiates.
0: Yeah, you know, and I I think that what you talk about listening to the old timers and identifying with the stories the first time you went. That's really what we're doing here. That is what Sober Stories is, is sharing different stories of doing this in different ways. Because as soon as we can see somebody doing it in a way that we can identify with, or that makes sense with our lived experience, or that feels empowering or supportive, I mean, the way that rewires our brain is really, really powerful you talk about going to AA with your your mom after she lost custody when you are a child. What was the evolution of that relationship like if you don't mind me asking?
1: I think as a um I think part of my my karma here is to be the transitional character within the family mm. dynamic to shift the generation and heal the wounds. Mm. So I've chose to be that generation of that, excuse me, that transitional character, which requires a lot of courage and faith. And that relationship with my mom, I have been and once again, there's, there, there's an overlap of codependence in a sense mm-hmm. with my mom. Uh, we have some uh, strong karmic ties. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. well aware of that. And I've accepted that I'm part of, we're part of each other's journey. Yeah. And I've been very influential uh, as a practitioner here in Sedona. You know, I, I I came to this point, obviously, decade, almost two decades sober. My mom's still struggling at moments. And, you know, it's it's been a relationship of me as the wounded child trying to Hold on to that relationship, and you know, have one, have a, have that type of relationship with my mom. But it's always been different because I was parentified. I was the Mm -hmm. parent, and she was like the child. So, the dynamic has been challenging. So, I think there's always part of me looking for that mom, but there's more a bigger part of me that knows I'm the adult to some degree, and and I have to take care of myself, Mm -hmm. and I can't count on anyone. Yeah, or can't count on her mm-hmm. particularly. And that's still the truth today.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's okay. And so I kind of hold it all. Yeah. And as a parentified child in a transitional character, I've invited my mom to my home in Sedona, and I've hooked her up with different doctors, practitioners, ketamine therapy. I've sent her to the jungles to do ayahuasca. I mean, my my, I've been very influential in her journey, and I I hold a different consciousness than she does at the moment. But I know that this being, my mother, is suffering, and mm. even when she relapses today, it's not that has nothing to do with me. Yeah, it's this being is still trying to get her needs met. But back in the day. When my mom drank, it was oh my god, what are you doing to me as this wounded child? Rightfully so, all that sort of stuff. And today, my consciousness is totally expanded, and it, and I just want to love this being, mm. but also set the boundaries too. Yeah. So I know that's a little complex answer, <laughs> but you know, it's it's a complex relationship. It is. It's not a typical mother son dynamic, and it's okay. Yeah.
0: I like this idea of being able to hold two different types of understandings of Mm -hmm. the relationship, understanding what you need as the child of somebody and, and what, especially when you were an actual child, what you really needed. And then also understanding the pain and struggle that a human being can go through. And I think that these are deeply human experiences we have when we struggle with substances. And, you know, what you were talking about made me think we had Amanda White of therapy for women on the podcast. Um, I think our very first episode and her book, not drinking tonight talks about, she said, you know, um, a large part of the book is about reparenting. And I think something that a lot of people who find themselves in a situation where they weren't given what they needed when they were children or are the parent in the relationship, so much of what we are learning on the other side of either while we're quitting a substance or after we've quit a substance is we gotta learn how to like do our own thing and be our own person and be the person that we need to count on. So how did you learn how to be the parent you needed? How did you learn how to build a life where you could remain substance free after this, this deep history of trauma?
1: That's a that that's a that was a process, but the the catalyst to that was having a spiritual awakening, ten years into recovery, from the other chapter of my story, which is chronic mm-hmm. illness. so i I don't think I could see through this lens I see today
2: mm-hmm.
1: without the healing that took place when I had a spiritual awakening. And that's what spiritual awakenings do is they reorganize us to see ourselves, what happened to us, our life in a, in a different way. And that's where the healing is. Right. And today, you know, that, that consciousness uh, had to be birthed still from deep suffering. Mm. So everything I shared with you with my childhood and drug addiction, all of that was like a skip in the Tula park after about nine or 10 years when I got sober and I got sick. So I think it's all a progression and somewhat an initiation mm-hmm. into who I've become today, just like you've had. you that 22 year old master's degree coming out of there, you know, thinking you're going to help the world. And then, bam, the universe <laughs> gave you what you needed mm-hmm. to, to shift the trajectory to do your own work and then to show up today. So that's kind of, I know it's kind of vaguely answering your question, but it's, it's a process and it began with really shifting my consciousness.
0: Well, let's talk about it. Tell me about chapter three and four.
1: Yeah. Chapter three was extremely painful. Like I said, it made my childhood and everything I went through look like a skip in the tulip park. And that ended, well, it started with getting a diagnosis of universalis sort of colitis. So irritable bowel disease, I bought my first home, I was when I say out my nervous system was stuck on, it means I was stuck on in a sympathetic reaction, fight or flight can't slow down. All right, for many of the listeners, you may be identifying this context, when you can't slow down. When you can't be with yourself in your body in the present moment, Mm -hmm. and you feel like you have to keep doing and going and going, and maybe you're an exercise addict like I was, maybe you're doing triathlons like I was, don't know. Uh, Maybe you just can't stop working. Maybe you just Mm -hmm. can't stop staying busy. That could be a signal that your nervous system is stuck on. And I was stuck on. And even nine years into recovery, I was stuck on. And once again, see that there's the deeper work that needs to be done, which is at the nervous system level. Mm -hmm. So I found myself couldn't slow down, bought a house, renovating it till wee hours of the AM, putting on my headset, going back to work, coming back, painting it, renovating, all that sort of stuff. And boom, I got irritable bowel disease showed up. I had about 10, 15 bloody bowel movements a day. Mm. I went to the GI doctor. He did a scope and he diagnosed me with a universalis ulcerative colitis, meaning my whole colon was ulcerated. Now, Beth, do you think he turned to me and put his hand around me and said, Hey, Mike, how did you become this way? Mm. How did your whole colon get ulcerated at 25? No, he didn't because that's one of the parts that mainstream medicine leaves out the linkage between the biography and the biology of how you came to be this way,
2: mm.
1: okay? Whether it's addicted, whatever the case may be. But my childhood was stuck in my colon. Mm. I was spewing off cortisol and epinephrine all day and couldn't find the deactivation in my nervous system, hence that was stuck on. And so fast forwarding, I, you know, he gave me a bunch of pills, prednisone, this and that. Okay, great. Took those still didn't change much of how I was living. The drugs helped me get into somewhat of a remission and I grabbed a backpack and traveled from there. I bought the house. It was up and running. I was doing really well at a company, making six figures. I was sober at the time, living a good life. And yet I was sick. So I traveled nine countries for five months, backpacked from Mexico down to Santiago, Chile, sober, had the time of my life. And uh, I I got a parasite in Guatemala. Mm. It tripped off the ulcerative colitis. And I came back early on my trip, sick, sicker than I ever was. And I went to a new GI doctor, and he basically put me on one of the big guns, an immunologic drug. And after 12 months, that drug decimated my liver.
2: Hmm.
1: And my liver began to develop autoimmune hepatitis. And they said, Whoa, 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 you can't be on this medication anymore. You have to go see a hepatologist. And in the meantime, here's a business card for a surgeon to maybe cut out your colon. Oh, my God. So I was like, Whoa, this, this is deep. And, um, I went and saw the hepatologist. They did a liver biopsy, and they said, uh, "Yeah, if you don't take care of this, you're going to need a liver transplant in eight years." And I was like, "Whoa!" So I have two organs on the table now. I'm in sobriety nine years, almost ten years. I'm sick as a dog, and I'm faced with some big decisions. So I said, "Is this what you have for me?" And they said, "Yeah." And I said, "Okay." And I left, and I never stepped foot back in that Western medicine paradigm. I went on a healing journey that set me up for the, you know, what I do today. Mm. And starting with that is uh, when I say I was suffering, why I was suffering so deeply besides the IBD was the gut and the brain are intricately connected and the inflammation was going from my gut to my brain. And here's another little interesting snippet. As a young kid, I always had a sensitive sense of smell
2: Mm.
1: because my sniffer is my nervous systems barometer of activation. Hmm. And something happened with the liver where I developed multiple chemical sensitivity, meaning my body was reacting towards chemicals in the environment, perfumes, deodorants, I mean, off gassing of carpets, paint fumes, diesel, just the normal things you and I smell each day, you would never be, you know, think that they are harmful. But when you breach that blood brain barrier in those chemicals actually get into the brain and cause inflammation, it was extremely challenging. And I was thrown into a fight or flight response when I smelt chemicals to the point where I couldn't operate in this everyday industrialized world. I had to retreat into nature because my nervous system was at threshold and I was systemically inflamed. The whole system, whole body was inflamed, brain was inflamed, and I was suffering. At this point, I was down about 145 pounds, maybe before that. Like I said, I was in the gym all the time. I was 175, 185 pounds, jacked strong, and the illness had withered me down. And what was happening, it was breaking me down physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually and rebuilding me, meaning... The whole identification with this body, this identification with me as who I am. Now I'm I'm getting into a a mystical kind of of (laughs) world here where I started listening to my inner wisdom in the woods and I began meditating. And I began meditating because my nervous system was at such threshold. No one knew what to do with me. And I was projecting the present moment of being in the suffering into the future. And I was I was suffering hmm. and I was I was I, and, and I began to realize that what was happening and where I was taking it in the projection were two different things, meaning I was having a split between awareness and ego. If you read the book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, yeah, I had a true. very I had this very similar experience. I was suffering so deeply that I that the consciousness split off and began to observe the experience begin to be the witness, begin to, and at this point, I'm practicing Buddhist meditation. Now, once again, the son of a born-again Christian preacher, this (laughs) was like, this was a complete no-no. Voodoo magic. (laughs) Yes, but I was gravitating towards the teachings because they were talking about the liberation of suffering. I was beginning to settle my mind or settle the mind and once again, uh, some of these great insights in wisdom was coming through. And I was having all sorts of interesting experiences that you may read about in different novels of people having these near-death experiences and things happening. For me, I'll just bring it to a little bit of the spiritual woo-woo side for a moment. My animal totem is the hawk and the owl. And these birds begin to visit me and and give me messages. And I knew I was having this awakening for a reason. It was, it was here. I was here to help people move through their suffering. And I began to, but, but in the beginning of this, it was, it was incredibly challenging because the, the deconstruction of my ego and, and sense of self was in the process. Now, I don't claim to be enlightened today. I'm not enlightened, mm-hmm. but it was a snippet into the spiritual path. Mm. You follow me? And as I began to shift from the stress to relaxation and shifting the consciousness, my body through that epigenetic process began to express uh, the genes of healing. Mm. And I began to follow what I say, follow the breadcrumbs. I found a functional medicine doc. I wrote six pages of what I was going through to her. She said, oh, I know what's wrong with you. And I said, oh, my God, someone knows what's wrong with me. And she got me on high-powered polyphenols, glutathione. I changed my whole diet. I did a fecal microbial transplant, which is, yes, it's a poop transplant. If you ever looked <laughs> it up, it's, 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 it, they actually they do it for um, C. diff but they don't do it for IBD because there's no money in other people's poop. There's money in immunologic and biological drugs. (laughs) So I did that process, right? I found a doc that would actually do it for me for IBD. So anyways, I went on this huge journey of of healing my childhood. And lo and behold, my body began to respond. And today I have my colon. I have my liver. I'm healthy and doing the wonderful work I, I do. So those are kind of the the chapters there of the trauma, addiction, chronic illness, and then spiritual awakening.
0: Mm. I, I kind of giggled a little bit because I, I imagine if it were me in that experience and they told me my liver was shutting down because of this autoimmune medication, I'd be like, well, what the hell? It didn't shut down because of the alcohol use, but now you're telling me medication is making my liver shut down. You know, I, I can't say that I completely followed all of it. I'll be totally honest. Like this idea of these different consciousnesses and, and your experience of this is something that I still myself struggle with grappling these experiences. And, and I think you and I talked before I work very much from this mind body connection and, I'm getting my yoga teacher certification, and I have my toes in this kind of mindfulness spiritual space, and I approach it as a scientist. So the neuroscience is always what helps me organize this. And and even though I think we have different experiences of your experience, I still hear the neuroscience. I still hear the central nervous system. I hear all of these experiences leading to clarity and leading to this ability for other experiences to come in. Hey, Sober Stories crew, your host, Beth here. Are you someone who is listening to these stories weekly, working on stringing together your first few days alcohol-free? Or maybe you can get a few days or even weeks under your belt, but you run out of steam eventually and go back to alcohol. That's because willpower is simply not enough. Ditching alcohol in a sustainable way has so much more to do with your physiology, your environment, your stress load, and on and on and on. That's why I combined my background in clinical therapy with my four and a half years alcohol-free to create The Booze Breakup, a program for women ready to ditch the nightly bottle of wine and build a sustainable version of this, whatever this is for you, that feels really, really good. If you're ready to make this stick in your craving community with other alcohol-free women, use code SOBERSTORIES for $50 off your enrollment to The Booze Breakup at theboozebreakup.com. Rooting for you always. So tell me, for somebody who can't go travel all these countries and go in the woods and experience this awakening, maybe they are stuck in a day job or they don't have the capital or whatever it is. For whatever reason, they can't go find themselves in the woods. How do you think that somebody could find this sense of peace and purpose that you have found?
1: Yeah. So that that is the work I do with people today, because not everyone, you know, obviously we all have different. Stories, Mm -hmm. but yet a lot of the similar outcomes happen. Paths are many, truth is one, therapies are many, healing is one.
2: Mm.
1: They're all to the same place. And to help someone feel comfortable in their own skin and touch the present moment is the miracle. Mm. And when you suffer from symptoms of trauma, even in long term recovery, It's challenging to live in the here and the now. Yeah. And that's the predicament of being dealt a challenging situation coupled with the activation in your body, i.e. overwhelm, anxiety, depression, whoever shows up for you, and even putting the drugs and alcohol down and still feeling like something's missing. Yeah. So then we can geek out a little bit together, Beth, about how to actually find that present moment and be comfortable in your own skin. And that requires a practice of coming to the here and the now. So many people in 12-step or in recovery talk about the stinking thinking.
0: They've <laughs> not heard that one.
1: Yeah, the stinking thinking. And thoughts are just thoughts sensations although can be extremely overwhelming if they're coupled with a traumatic incident can be Mm. extremely fearful and challenging but they're only sensations feelings can be challenging and overwhelming but they're only feelings so Rumi has a beautiful poem Mm -hmm. the guest house you are the guest house." Each day, a new beginning, shame, malice, come to your guest house, try to sweep it of its furniture, invite the guests for tea, even if they're challenging. And this is what we need to begin to learn how to do is be with the psyche, be with this mind and body in a way that we can navigate what's here that leads to more wisdom, compassion, and healing. So it can be as simple Right. As an SE practitioner, SE is somatic experiencing. It's a modality uh, created by Dr. P. Levine. Amazing, amazing modality. It's given me a language for what I experienced. But what we do there is, is we begin to hang out with the activation that's coupled with your story, Mm. Now, if you've been in talk therapy forever, you may go there and and just keep talking, talking, talking. And what you're really doing, it's a beautiful beginning, but we're overriding the sensations and emotions that are tied to that story. Now, I'm a good storyteller, at least I hope I am. (laughs) And and what I mean by that is I can easily override the suffering in my Mm. nervous system by just blurting out the story. But when we slow down, we begin to see what the body's holding as a result of the story. Mm. And we begin to integrate the psychological, the psyche into the, the body, the organism, so that you can be here in this skin suit without having to get messed up, mm. without having to disassociate, without having to do all our different management strategies to not feel what's here. Addiction is an, just an intense management strategy.
2: Yeah. Hmm.
1: So we have to come to the present moment and learn how to be with our own mind, with our sensations and feelings. And often that's with the help and support of another person. Yeah. I feel everyone that has that activation stuck in their body. I've been there in hmm. the first condition that needs to be met for that to be processed is safety because mm-hmm. we can't heal if we don't feel safe. So supporting others to feel safe and for them to share their story and for them to slow down enough to feel what's in their body and let that process and move through. It's there's the, the integration, mm. right? The psyche and the Soma coming back to one. How do we, come back in unification to this and become in body and to be okay with what's here and to develop more of that observer, that witness that can be on board, which is consciousness, which is really what we are. When I share that awakening, I, I that awakening experience I had with you is is I became one at one point. There was no me. I was the acorn that burst into the 90-foot oak tree. I was the bird migrating. There was no duality. And I know y'all might might, might say, oh, well, that didn't happen to me. (laughs) Yes, I I hear you. But even if we begin the practice of noticing what's here rather than becoming it, there's a gap that begins to open up. There's a space that begins to, to occur. And once again, that space is the awareness that can hold what's here in the moment. And as we develop more of that capacity, right, in our nervous system to work and be here with the activation and or thoughts, we become less attached.
0: Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you and I speak a lot of the same language in different frames.
1: Yeah, because oh, and it, it, yeah, and it, it's it, it's all the yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, tell me more.
0: Well, you know, when you talk about this and and you talk about experiencing the story but still feeling it in our body without overriding that without moving past that that's shame resilience. That's a technique I teach in my, like a clinical therapy-based technique. When we talk about experiencing or retelling a shame experience while dropping into our body and noticing what is activated by this experience, and then sharing this within a safe container with people who can hold you, people who can hear this shame story of yours and say, okay, so what? Or I still love you, or I see you. Or the the other thing that comes up is a technique we call distress tolerance, which is a dialectical behavioral theory. And distress tolerance says, if we we, we have become intolerant to distress, mm-hmm. and when we sit in distress without running from it, we are building our tolerance for that distress, making it easier the next time, making us understand that it's safe to sit in this physical body that we are in, even though our brain, even though our nervous system says we are in danger. And so it's like, you, you talk about these things, and I think that these are just, what that tells me that you can talk about it from the lens that you see it. And I can talk about it from the lens that I see it in is these are universal concepts. These are universal concepts. And that if we can drop into our physical bodies, if we can be in our physical bodies, feeling all the feelings that we have while also connecting the mind and understanding that this is a whole person that we are, that is the the next step. That is the key to being able to, to experience this human experience we have. So, I mean, I we could geek out about this forever. This is so interesting it, to me. They're,
1: they're total universal experiences, and they're tied to spiritual teachings. Ready? Yeah. Jesus said, be still and know that I am God. In the stillness arises greater consciousness. He's talking about a God consciousness. The Buddha, when the Buddha sat and touched the earth and said, may you be my witness... When Mara came to try to sweep him off his, his grounded, you know, present moment ability to be with all of the Mara, which is the, you know, all the temptations and the, the challenges that the mind and body can, can bring to us, right? And he said, may the earth be my witness and, and had a spiritual awakening. It's, it's our challenges, the inability to be with the difficult yeah. And when that's what happened to me, I came to the the bottleneck of suffering to where I thought I was going to die and I leaned in. Hmm. And from that contraction, birthed a huge expansion and reorganized how I saw things, the Hmm. world, myself, what happened. And instead of identifying with this, I'm an alcoholic or addict, this very limited lens to see through now, bear with me. This is, this is just <laughs> Mike Devone, not, not best. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I don't think it's supportive for people to say I'm an alcoholic and drug addict day in and day out. You are not an alcoholic and drug addict. Your maladaptive attempt to, or behavior was to use these substances to bypass your pain. Mm. It's not who you are. Who you are is loving, conscious awareness at the core. Mm. And for us to experience that is where the healing comes from. Now to pivot and, and to shake your, your your podcast up a little bit, <laughs> I'm a I'm a huge fan of using psychedelics in the right context for therapy. Okay, you're really help, shaking up here, huh? They they help they shift your consciousness. Mm. They're gifts from the gods when used appropriately in a therapeutic context, they've Mm. been used for thousands of years since the beginning of time in shamanic rituals and ceremonies. And we've been flooded with propaganda to turn towards them. Now, believe me, I don't think smoking, you know, cannabis every day and getting blasted and checking out of your problems is the way out. No, no, no. Talking about very working with very skilled practitioners in a therapeutic context. And as we head towards the days where psilocybin and Mm MDMA-assisted psychotherapy are going to be legalized, we need to start thinking about this from a different lens. Mm -hmm. Now, my doorway is through meditation, through Mm -hmm. being and sitting with my suffering, and it made all my psychedelic journeys look like a skip in the park as well. There was (laughs) nothing that compared to me having those conditions arise when I was about to check out, literally jump off a bridge, and instead say, you know what? I'm gonna to turn towards the suffering. Mm. So there's two types of suffering: suffering you run away from, and it follows you everywhere; a suffering you turn towards and become free.
0: I'm just like over here chewing because I, I, you know, I, when I think about the reason why I started misusing alcohol, it was in the middle, in the throes of postpartum depression. It was in the throes of new motherhood in an intolerable experience, in an experience where I had to get outside of myself. And then after removing it, still experiencing that, I've got two kids. My first kid, Will, was two years old when I quit drinking. And that experience was when my alcohol use really escalated. And then my son, Max, he's three. So I was already sober when I had him and I had the same experience both times. I had postpartum depression with both of them and the experience of running away from it with will, with substances, with alcohol versus the experience of leaning into it with Max and understanding and knowing that this is what this is and getting the support and the tools that I needed to, to get through that without a substance, like I really like this idea of turning away versus turning in. And I I hope whoever's listening to this can understand that that's not to diminish the experience. That's not to diminish the experience of the trauma or the pain that we are going through that is causing us to use this substance. And, And I very much believe that almost every case of addiction has a root cause. Like almost every case of addiction has some sort of experience that we are trying to get away from. But I hope whoever's listening to this can can think about this turning in versus turning away and understanding that sometimes the only way out is through, to use the, the overused trope. We, we get through this experience by leaning in, by going through it, by pushing into it, and of course, using our support network, of course using the medical team or care professional team or whoever is there to support us, of course, using every tool in our toolbox. But, you know, and I know you and I were connected through Jeff Simone of reaction recovery. And, and Jeff talks about desert days and and this idea of leaning in, leaning in, even though it's painful, leaning in, even though it's really difficult to go through these desert days to get to the other side. So, you know, there are so many pieces of your story that like my, I want to touch because like I connect with the spiritual side of it. And then the part of me that's like the scientist and then the, the neuroscientist and the therapist is like, oh, that feels a little hard. But I think that there are so many pieces to this that I, I want people to take the pieces that work for you. And I want people to take the pieces that you can hear and resonate with and say, This is a new idea that I hadn't thought about before, or this is something that I can touch and I can use moving forward. And so, if you had one of the the last questions I want to ask you, is you talk a lot in your work about the difference between recovery and healing. And, And I think that that really speaks to everything we've talked about today. But in a nutshell, what do you mean by the difference between recovery and healing? Yeah. So
1: I, I coined the term healing beyond recovery. And I think just to touch the surface of that is honestly today recovery has changed so much. I don't even know what you may define or I may define as recovery, right? Cause it's, it's, it's evolving and it's changing. And I think there's a new consciousness being birthed mm-hmm. in the recovery community, Where people are like, okay, at 12 steps and so forth, those programs are great, but I need something else. Yeah. And that something else is the healing. People are looking for healing. What does that mean to me? It means to come back to wholeness and to be engaged and have that shift where you can navigate life in this body. And know that you can make it through anything. So you have to engage the shift in your own perceptions and consciousness, and that's where I think the healing happens. So supporting one to see things differently and to feel comfortable in this skin suit with that assurance from themselves that they can navigate it, I think is is healing, and I think the restoration of one's nervous system to find that greater coherence versus being up and down in the peaks and valleys all the time is healing. Mm. So we could take it a step forward. If you you want, I'll just share with you as (laughs) as I, I don't think addiction is a life sentence either. Mm -hmm. I agree
0: with you on that. Now,
1: what what do I mean by that? It doesn't mean that I think Going out and drinking booze and doing and and doing oxycontin's is is supportive to me because I don't think that's the truth. But I don't think it's a life sentence in the aspect of of engaging. I have to be very careful. I say this because I don't want to give the listeners a wrong um, idea. Is is that I believe you can have freedom to choose down the road. Okay, and I'll give you an example. And I'm being very transparent about this because we can't talk about anything unless we talk about the truth, Yeah. right? So this shift in consciousness that I experienced, even that Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson were talking about, and and just to not put a ruffle in anyone's feathers, but, you know, LSD is is, is and was a part of AA, uh, or he wanted to integrate it because Bill was having these experiences of psychedelics and a particular one, Belladonna, and so spiritual experience is, is part of the, the backbone of, of AA to begin with. But where I was going with that was, you know, after the shift of consciousness, I, I never went back to AA. I didn't feel I needed AA. I, I I wasn't at the level. And I don't say that from a place of ego. It's yeah. it's it's I've found a different path, right? Buddhist, Buddhist teachings, meditation, that sort of the path of awakening. But I I wasn't jiving at that at that old kind of consciousness or paradigm of that. I'm, I'm this wounded alcoholic and I'm subject to, you know, being an addict, you know, every day of my life and da, da, da. and the truth that I'm sharing too, is I explored and smoked my first joint in 17 years,
2: hmm.
1: new years. And guess what? I have no desire to smoke joints every day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't enjoy it. I actually was able to experience it in that observer that's on board from my meditation practice was able to hold the experience. Mm-hmm. And I'll share with you, it was actually therapeutic in the aspect of it was cannabis is psychedelic meaning mind manifesting. Mm-hmm. And I was able to see the workings of my mind on this cannabis. And I said, if I'm going to do this again, all right? I, I might as well set myself up in, in the same context that I would if I was going to explore with a psychedelic right. in the aspect of give me a notepad, give me a pen, give me you know, for, for psychedelic therapy, there's the context of set, mindset going in it, setting, dose, substance, guide, sitter. All these parameters, if you look at the maps, who's who's working with the FDA to regulate and for Mm MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to become legal, these are all the guidelines they use. So having that experience on cannabis was like, oh my God, like there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be revealed to me. And that's what that did. So I want to touch upon something you said earlier before about, you know, that there's there's a root, there's, there's something happening at the root of everyone's addiction, right? Some sort of experience happened that they're trying to run from. Let me share it with you. The psyche is so deep and intelligent that it will only reveal to you what you're ready to see in that moment. And there are so many things driving us from the deep unconscious that we don't even know. Some things that happen to many of us that we can't put words to because it happened pre-verbal. Mm. And these traumas are still embedded in the mind-body. Mm. And Carl Jung also says we don't become enlightened by imagining images of light, but by only making the darkness conscious. That's the process of sitting in that stillness, sitting in with that pain, allowing the psyche and body to come together and for you to hold those experiences and for you to move through them. And I've honestly lost the track of your last question.
0: Um, (laughs) I I don't know. I I followed you though. That was, yeah. I'm I'm with you though.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So just, you know, it's the evolution of, of what's here for us who are in recovery and um, yeah.
0: I love it. You know, and, and I, like you said, these are, these are our personal experiences and our personal opinions, but I also, my own experience of what I call my sobriety, I don't feel, I feel much freedom in it. I feel a lot of freedom in it. And I don't feel like I'm one drink away from, from throwing my life away. I don't feel like I'm in these desert days all the time. It just feels free to me. And I think what I take away from that is that here at Sober Stories, you know, we really do share sober stories of people in all different paths. So I appreciate your, your candor and your experience with these psychedelics, because, I I believe very firmly there's not one right way to do this. I believe very firmly that there are different ways for us to be whole and healed, and that may look different for each of us. And, and, And I think there's an aspect of that feeling threatening if that doesn't align with our personal experience when we hear somebody else exploring this in a way that doesn't align with what has worked for us or what currently works for us. But I think you're right about this shift in this recovery space of understanding that there are... There are different iterations of this and and the end goal, the end goal is to have a more healed collective, to have people be well and good in their bodies and not in this addiction and experiencing this inner dialogue and and all of the thoughts that you were feeling before you ever got sober and and that really deep, dark place. So I followed you. I don't remember what what we started that conversation with either. Yeah, I went on a little tangent. Um, I loved it though. But yeah. all right, Mike, we are running out of time today, but I want to ask you one last question. And every podcast, the last question I ask is if your story, this four-part story were to be written, what would it be titled and what kind of book is it?
1: I think the book would be like a, a mem- memoir type. Mm-hmm. And I think the title would be uh, one breath at a time mm. because I, I healed one breath at a time. And I think when we begin to, you know, they call it the breath of life, breathing the breath of life, this autonomic process is keeping this body, sustaining life in this body. And yet so many of us are disconnected Mm. from the very autonomic process that is keeping them alive. Mm. And the breath is also the bridge from the unconscious to the conscious. Mm. And when we can begin to connect and build a relationship with our breath, amazing things begin to happen.
0: I love that. And and a little note of like what I teach is the breath is the one autonomic function in our body that we can also intentionally manipulate. We can also use it on purpose. It's the one
1: function. Yeah. Yeah, You can, you can use it to stimulate yourself. You can use it to, to relax. It's, it's amazing.
0: It's magic. All right, my yeah. friend. Well, I just appreciate you so much and your candor and and telling us these stories of your life and this evolution to the point where you are now. And I know these are hard things to talk about. So I really appreciate your story today. I know our folks are going to want to connect with you. Where can they find you? What do you have going on in your world?
1: So right now I'm supporting clients one-on-one through online and in person. Um, and you can find me, my website is MikeGavoni.com, M-I-K-E-G-O-V-O-N-I. And uh, my Instagram is Mike Gavoni as
0: well. Beautiful. Well, y'all go check out Mike's stuff. His work is really beautiful. And I have, it, it. it always, every time I look at something you've posted, it's really interesting how it like will reframe a thought that I have. And it challenges me, but I think that's good too. So Mike, thank you so much for your time today. I hope you have a beautiful day. Thanks, Beth. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Mike Gavoni. You know, there are so many pieces of Mike's story that really resonated with me. And then pieces of it that just gave me a whole different way of looking at all of this. I hope it did the same for you. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us. If you took a second to rate and review sober stories, wherever you get your podcasts, this helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it. If you shared it with us on social media, you can find us at we are sober stories on most platforms tag us so we can hear your big takeaways. And you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams as our community engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends.